How do we know Jesus is who he says he is? And how do we know what is truth and what is not truth? How do we know true teaching from false teaching? And how can we be certain of salvation, or, or can we? You know, those are relevant and pressing questions that have been asked for centuries and still resonate within the minds of believers and, and unbelievers alike. I mean, there are moments that you may have doubts and questions. I, I've had those before. So what do we do when those moments and questions come? Well, I'm going to be talking about that today on Crossroads and Culture. Welcome to another episode of Crossroads and Culture, where life, ministry, and culture meet. And today, I'm going to be doing a study, starting a beginning, a series rather, on First John, the the book of First John, and why I believe it's it's so timely for us. All of God's word is timely and relevant. But in reading First John, especially in these days, I think is so crucial, and it's because I think. Right theology, right doctrine, sound doctrine is so important. And the only way in which we are able to know what sound doctrine and good theology is, is by reading the Word of God. Good Bible study, reading God's Word leads to good and right theology. It's not anyone's opinion. It's not anyone's kind of bent. It's what does God's Word say? And it's so important, regardless of where you go to church, what you listen to, what podcasts you listen to, uh, what YouTube videos you watch, whoever you're listening to preach or speak or, or talk about anything as it relates to spirituality or the Bible, religion, Jesus, God. It is important. It is imperative that you take what you hear and go back to the Word of God and see what God's word has to say about this. And that's that's where a problem is, I believe. There's a study that's been done uh, by the American Bible Society. They do this pretty much every year, and it's called uh, The State of the Bible. I'm, I'm going to put a link in the notes of this podcast so that you can go and look at that. It's actually a PDF that you can download and read through, and it's just it's really good, in-depth study that they've done, research, um, to, to kind of help us see what the pulse is, so to speak, of 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 Christianity or or those who read the Bible, and and in looking at that, there were some things that really stood out to me. That one of the statistics was that ten percent of Americans read the Bible daily, only ten percent, and that Bible engagement among Bible engaged evangelicals, evangelical adults, it's down ten percent since twenty twenty one. That's a decrease of about twenty six million Americans. And in this study, some of the reasons that were given by those who were asked these questions for not engaging in the Bible, some of the responses, maybe are responses that are familiar to you. Maybe you've used these reasonings, or maybe it's better to call it excuses um, at times in your life. One of the reasons was because we don't read because we don't have enough time. And my question is, why not? We make time for what is really important. We, we can look at our life and see that. Another reason was we don't know where to start. And when I think about that, that's really upon churches to help disciple people of, of giving them tools and resources to help them know how to study the Bible and how to read the Bible. I mean, we've never had more tools available to us than we do today. I mean, you can listen to the Bible while you're exercising, you know, what's filling your mind and your time. Um, I mean, they're just, there are Bible reading plans. It's, there are a lot of tools out there 
that we have at our disposal. And as leaders, Christian leaders specifically, it is, it is our responsibility. I mean, this is our calling to, to disciple believers. And so we can point them to these tools. But those are just a few reasons why some Americans said that they're not engaging in the Bible. The other thing I think is important is, is something that Christian Smith said. He's been um, kind of credited with this statement, uh, this phrase, moralistic therapeutic deism, which just simply means that, um, that people approach uh, religion or the relationship with God in this moralistic therapeutic way um, where they're trying to do morally good things in order to please God. They think God is distant, but in order to please him, we have to check all the boxes and do all the right things as though we're performing for God. That's Christian Smith, his phrase that he puts on this. And I, I think that that's true in a lot of ways, especially if we examine our life and say, okay, why am I doing the things I'm doing? Am I trying to please God? Not because of obedience to his word, but are there certain things that I'm trying to do to perform for God just to try to make him pleased with me by my be me being morally good. And there is something true to being, to pursuing holiness and obeying what his word says, but our works don't make us right with God. It's the work of Christ on the cross. When we turn from sin, confessing our sin, repenting, turning from our sin and surrendering our life to Jesus Christ, that we are able to have a relationship with God in Christ. And it's through the process of sanctification where we're studying the word of God and the spirit of God is at work in us that he's making us more like Jesus, that we're become we're, we're becoming conformed to his image is what the scripture says. It doesn't mean we become Jesus, but it means we become more like Jesus by the power of his spirit and the word that's at work in us. That's sanctification. Back to the study, one of the other th- things that they pointed out was how the majority of evangelicals are approaching the scriptures. So this is not the term Christian because there are a lot of people who who think that they fall under this this term Christian, and they think that they're a Christian because they were born into a Christian family, or they go to church, or again, the, the things that moralistic therapeutic deism would say makes you right with God. But these are evangelicals, those who would say they, they believe in the essential doctrine regarding salvation, um, uh, God's word, all, the, all of the things that we would say are essential um, as it relates to the Christian faith um, and Christian orthodoxy. But but one of the things that that was pointed out was how the majority of evangelicals are approaching the scriptures. And some of the reasons that they said or some of the things that they stated that was the response of people who were asked these questions is that they approach the scriptures um, not because God commands me to. And it's not because I can know God better or teach good theology or pursue holiness or be holy. But they found that most people are approaching the Bible, again, uh, evangelicals, a majority of them, that they're approaching the Bible through the lens of an anthropocentric view, which simply means that it's through this lens of what can the Bible do for me? What what can be done for me? And what, what I see in, in churches, what, what, I've been, what I've observed and what other people have observed and talked about and written about and done podcasts on and so forth has been validated by these studies, that many American evangelicals and churchgoers have an empirical and emotional lens regarding their faith and their approach to reading the scriptures. In other words, that we have to see it. I have to see it and I have to feel it. I have to experience it. It's, 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 emotion, it's emotionally driven. That, that's really the culture we live in. I have to experience it and I have to feel it. And if I don't experience it or feel it, then it can't be true. It can't be right. It can't be good. I, I need something I can see and I can feel emotionally. And so spirituality within the American church has become very egocentric or, or anthropocentric is, is what the study would say. 
a sort of what, what has God done for me lately kind of theology. And, and such a view, this kind of view is leaving the church devoid of the demonstrative power of the Spirit of God, and it's opening wide the doors to an emotionally and experientially driven train wreck. We're seeing this. We see this reflected in preaching and teaching in churches. We see it even in the songs that are generally sung in many churches, um, in how hard issues are addressed, or in many cases in churches they're not addressed, they're just avoided. Um, and those issues have become divisive within the church. I mean, we could go back to all the way to COVID and mask or not mask or, or the shot, the vaccine or not the vaccine. I mean, all of these different things, the abortion issue, um, uh, gender identity. I mean, there's so many things that many churches are not touching because it's so culturally charged, yet we are biblically mandated as leaders, as pastors, as teachers to preach the whole counsel of God's word. But rather than looking to the scriptures, there, there seems to be this this filtering what we say uh, and, and 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 formulating these ever changing and unstable convictions based on feelings, not not on the unchanging character of God and the eternal truth of, of His Word. And it's a dangerous thing. Uh, these empirically and emotionally driven movements movements such as uh, the NAR, maybe you've heard of this, the New Apostolic Reformation, where those who are saying that there are modern day apostles and modern day prophets, which scripture does not teach that. And that's for another podcast. Um, I've actually, I think done a podcast on that specifically. Um, but that's a movement that is, that is catching fire um, in the United States, all over the world. Bethel church is one who is kind of looked to is leading this charge in this. And I know that some of you um, listen to perhaps Bill Johnson and, and are very familiar with Bethel. And, and even at hearing that, you kind of have maybe this cognitive dissonance of like, what, they're perfectly good. They're really good. What I would say to you is spend time listening to the messages and taking what you hear over and against the word of God. And what you're going to find is that there is much that's being taught, false teaching that's being taught um, through the preaching and teaching of Bill Johnson. I could give you a wealth of information well-documented about what's going on, but that's not the only movement. I mean, there are other things that are taking place as well. We've got those who call themselves progressive Christians, which really isn't Christianity at all, that try to say that that we can be saved without the cross of Christ, um, that salvation is something beyond what God's Word says salvation is. I mean, there's so many heretical teachings and false teachings that are infiltrating the church these days that we have to know what the truth is so that we can be able to discern the deception, discern the lies. And so it's a, it's a dangerous thing when our faith is based upon what we can empirically see or experience and our emotions, our experiences and emotions, part of who we are. Absolutely. But if you're letting those things drive your faith and 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 direct your steps, you're going to find yourself um, in in big trouble, right? I mean, because right biblical engagement is seeing Scripture as the lens through which we learn what it means to know God and how we are to view God and to love Him rightly. It, it's it's does the Bible speak about our needs and about what's going on within us? Absolutely. But right biblical engagement is where we look at Scripture and see it as the lens through which we learn what it means to know God and how we're to view God and love him rightly. And when we do that, then we're able to act in accordance, in obedience to him. And in doing so, we begin to, to walk in a manner of obedience um, in pursuing him. And, and that's where life is found. And so when we look at right biblical engagement, what it is is seeing Scripture as the lens through which we know and learn how to love others rightly. So not only are we looking at Scripture to know um, who God is and how we're to view God and love him rightly, but also scripture is the lens through which we know and learn how to love others rightly. 
And when we engage in scripture, it's also seeing scripture as the lens through which we know and learn how to pursue holiness as we walk in obedience to Christ. So it's not about, it's not about what has God done for me lately. It's not an anthropocentric view of, I want to find myself in the scriptures or reading yourself into the text. It's what does the text say and how do I apply the text, the truth of God's word to my life? How do I adjust my life to God's word? Not how do we adjust God's word to fit our lives? So when we, when we're not engaging in the word of God and engaging rightly, it's, it's when we're living each day without, without engaging God's word, it's, it's like, it's like driving downhill on a, on a, on a treacherous mountain road with, with no brakes or guardrails. And although it may seem inconsequential at first, it's inevitable that you're going to lose control and you're going to find yourself going off a cliff to your own peril. And that's what leads us to the study of first John. Because that's what was happening. There was in in this in this letter that he writes. It's the first letter, First John. This first the first letter he writes um, to give answer to the questions that I gave at the very beginning of this introduction. Like, how do we know who Jesus is and who he says he is? How do we know what is truth and what's not truth? How do we know true teaching from false teaching? How, how can we be certain of salvation? All of these questions, and there's many more. And so John's writing this letter because he's wanting the believers to know the truth. I mean, he uses this word know with a sense of knowing the truth 36 times in this first letter that he writes. Now, during, during this day, um, when, when, when John was writing this, he's writing to the churches that are surrounding Ephesus uh, in Asia Minor because false teaching and heresy had already begun to take root in the early church. And, and there were those who had fallen prey to the wolves that, that the Apostle Paul had told them about in the letter he wrote to the church at Ephesus. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is meeting with the elders there in Ephesus, and he says, listen, you, you guys need to understand that there are going to be people who come in who are wolves, and they'll be in sheep's clothing, and they're, they're teaching twisted things. They're devious. They're proclaiming a twisted theology. And so he's telling the elders that they are to guard the flock, that they're to guard those who've been entrusted to their care. That's what Acts 20 speaks of. And so in the same way, John sees this, and, and really what's taking place is the seeds that would eventually grow into Gnosticism and this esoteric knowledge and other things um, begin to take root in the early church. And so John sees this, and he's like, I've got to write this letter so that you'll be able to know what is true, that you'll be able to know who this Jesus is and how do you discern who Jesus is according to the word of God, not according to culture. How can you discern what is false teaching? Because when you look at false teaching, you may have 95% truth being spoken, but if the other 5% of that teaching are based on lies or are lies, all of it's toxic. It's kind of like if I were to make you a pie, not that you would want me to, but if I, if I were to make you a pie and I set it down in front of you and I said to you, you know what, 95% of this pie is really good. Um, it's got chocolate in it. It's got, you know, the meringue, it's got the crust. It's got, I mean, it's so good, right? I got this recipe off of food network. It's really good. You're going to love this, but 5% of this pie has arsenic in it. Uh, there's some, there's some poison in it. Uh, and you could die if you take a wrong bite or a wrong slice. I would dare say you would not take a chance on eating that pie. You would push it to the side. Yet what's happening in our culture today is that we're listening to people and we're trying to extract truth from it. Um, and saying, I'm just not going to, I'm just not going to hold on to the lies. But the problem with that is this, the enemy is so crafty and he's very, he, he's very deceptive. And we have to be very careful that we don't put ourselves under teaching 
or even associate with those who are not teaching the full counsel, the truth of God's word, because you never know when what they're teaching may sound true, yet isn't true. And before you know it, you begin to walk down this path of deception. And so John, in writing this letter, he is, he is trying to address um, the believers and warn them of those who are propagating a false gospel within the church, within the church itself in Ephesus and surrounding Ephesus and the Roman province of, of Asia Minor. So, so because it created a lot of confusion among the believers, I mean, some of them were thinking, like, how do I know if I'm really saved? John addresses that in this letter. So maybe some of the questions you've asked is like, how do I know if I'm really saved? How do I know what the truth is? This letter is very timely and it's relevant just as it was for them. It is for us as well. So we can know the truth is what John says. We can know how to discern what is false. We can know with certainty the assurance of our faith and how to remain steadfast when others are falling away. So, so John in his letter, he starts with something that's very foundational um, as the premise for why he has a strong belief in Christ and in his gospel and why we can have a certainty regarding the truth of who Christ is and the faith that, that we've come to embrace as believers in Christ. And what he does, he starts in the beginning. Now, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, John talks about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so he makes this case of, of how the Word existed um, even, I mean, I mean, it was there in the beginning, never was created. It's always been there in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And so I know there's some, um, religious groups that take that text and they twist it and they, um, they have changed it. Um, but what the word says clearly is that in the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. And then in verse 14, John later writes, he says, and the word became flesh. So the very word of God has become flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the word made flesh. That's an important point that we'll talk about through this uh, through this podcast as we, as we begin to, to look at wrapping this up in just a few moments. But he starts with the beginning, and he says that the word of life Jesus was made manifest, was revealed, God in the flesh. And so God has made himself known to us in his son, Jesus Christ. So when you're reading this text, John is confident about who Jesus is. He's confident that Jesus is life, that he is the truth, and he wants his readers, he wants the believers, and they would have read this to the other churches in the surrounding areas of Ephesus. He wants them to know with certainty. Um, about their salvation, about the truth, how to discern false teaching from true teaching. And so we can know the same way, that just as John in his word, he says, we heard Jesus, we saw him, we gazed upon him, we touched the word of life. I think about Thomas when Jesus said to him, put your hand in my side and in my hands. I want you to see and feel the scars. Right, so so they they touched, they saw, they gazed upon Jesus. And so John's saying, this is bedrock for me. I'm convicted of this. So so what about us? I mean, how can we know what is truth? Well, one of the things I would say is that is that our faith in Christ is not without substance. Now, there were some people who would say, well, it's just a faith issue. Well, all of life's a faith issue, right? I mean, the bridge you just drove across this morning, perhaps, I mean, do you 
you drove across that by faith. I mean, you didn't get out of your car before you crossed the bridge, go underneath the bridge and check the integrity of the structure to make sure that there were no cracks in it, that there was, you know, no concrete missing or rebar was all messed up or whatever. You just simply drove across that bridge. Why? Because you've driven across that bridge perhaps so many times that it's not even a thought in your mind. And so the more that we continue to put our faith and trust in Jesus and trust him, he has proven to us that he's faithful. So so everything in life is a faith issue, but our faith in Christ is not without substance. And John talks about that. He speaks to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It's where God became flesh in the person of his son, Jesus. We believe in the Trinity as believers in Christ and as those who are Bible-believing followers of Jesus is we believe in the Trinity, that there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, each fully God. And so the incarnation of Christ is God the Son, God in the flesh, Jesus, the incarnate Christ. And John talks about this in verse 2 and verse 3. He said, this life was made manifest, and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. In other words, God revealed this to us in Jesus that which we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. And so John is saying, look, God has come in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Christ incarnate. And we, we've seen it. God has revealed this to us. And we can testify to it. He said, we, I will put my life on the line for this. And eventually John would, just like the other apostles. John would be the last apostle standing, so to speak, uh, when he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And it was there that he wrote the book of Revelation back around the mid-90s, mid A.D. 95 to 98, somewhere in that area. So you have John, this last apostle, and he's, and he's somewhat discouraged because he's seeing what's happening within the churches, how this heresy and false teaching is creeping in. And so he's writing with passion and with conviction. You'll notice in this letter that John, is he doesn't mix words. He, he's pretty black and white. And I know that for some people, that's a little kind of odd maybe to some degree because because of all of the you know the cultural views of who John it was, he was kind of like this meek disciple who leaned against the the chest of Jesus at the Last Supper, and was it Da Vinci's painting where he painted that? It almost looks like John is this meek person, but you have to you have to realize that that this that this John that this John, a son of thunder, uh, uh, he was passionate and zealous about the truth, yet he had an understanding as well what it meant to really love people. Because even in this letter, as much as he is 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 passionate about the truth and knowing the truth, he also says we need to abide in love, which tells us that there's a way in which for, uh, which we as believers hold to the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word, and at the same time are able to be loving. Because in, our, in, in this day and time, some people would say, well, if you speak truth like this, you're going to hurt people's feelings, you're going to offend them, that's not loving. And the reality is, is that whenever you speak the truth in a way that is kind and compassionate, Uh, Even though people may say that's not nice, there's a difference between kindness and niceness, by the way, but when you speak it in kindness and with compassion, speaking the truth in love is always the most loving thing to do. It's when you withhold truth from people and not speak it, that that's unloving. And so John is speaking about truth and about love. And he says, I'm sharing this with you because I've seen this and I'm testifying to this. I'm, I'm willing to put my life down on this and I'm proclaiming this to you uh, because in Jesus is eternal life. This eternal life that we find in God the Father is in Jesus his Son and it's in Christ that we have eternal life. And this word, this 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 person of Jesus who is God in the flesh was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So it sounds redundant, but the reason why he keeps repeating this over and over and over is again is because he's so convinced by this. 
So there's the incarnation of Jesus. So that's our faith is not without substance because of the incarnation of Christ, but also this eyewitness testimony of the apostles and the disciples. Again, he goes back and says what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked upon, what we've touched with our hands. I mean, he just keeps repeating this over and over and over again in these first four verses. And it's almost like you want to say to John, hey, look, John, I get it. I get it. I get it. You saw it. You you, you gazed upon him. You, you touched his side. You were, I mean, I, I get this, but John is so is so passionate about this and about knowing that this is how we know it has to, this has to be foundational in our life. Um, uh, it's, it's the foundation for us in, in our faith and walking with Jesus. So he says, we've seen it. We've seen eternal life manifested in Christ. We, we testify to this. We speak about this eternal life that's in Christ and we're proclaiming to you this eternal life that's in Christ. And so he's trying to help them understand what salvation is and the eternal life that we have in Christ. So our faith is, in Christ is not without substance, but here's something even better for those who would say, you know, I've just got to see it. I mean, the disciples saw it. Why couldn't we see it? Well, this is where, as I was saying earlier, all of life is a faith issue that, that the, that the beauty of this is that God's testimony regarding his son is greater even than eyewitness testimony because God reveals to us the truth by his spirit. First John chapter five or six was, we'll, go through this podcast series we'll get to this eventually but john writes this he says and the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth the spirit testifies to who christ is the spirit points us to jesus that there is no way we can have a relationship with god the father um, except through jesus christ and it is the spirit of god who draws us to the father through his son jesus and so it, it, he's the spirit of truth and he testifies of the truth so, so here's what's so great about this. We're not, we don't need physical evidence when God's spirit is the greater testimony because even in seeing and hearing, that's often not enough for us. I mean, you think about it today, we can see pictures and, and, and videos and, and now technology exists. I think it's a Samsung galaxy phone where you can actually take video or you can take pictures. I know, I know it's true for pictures. I don't know if about the video, but you could take pictures and you can alter the photo where if there's somebody in the background of the picture that you don't want there, you can remove them. You know, so anybody at any point can say, well, you know what? That person was never really there, even though they were actually there. So even now seeing it's hard for us to know what is true, even with physical evidence and seeing and hearing. And Jesus spoke of this, right? When he said in the gospel of Matthew chapter 13, verse 13, he said, this is why I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they don't hear, nor do they understand. That's why saving faith is not, based upon physical evidence. Saving faith is the work of the Spirit of God who opens our eyes to the truth of who Christ is and the hope of his gospel. Again, Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, verse six, uh, chapter 16, verse 17, he said, uh, and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. So he's talking to Peter. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So when Jesus was asking this question, who do people say that I am? They were talking about, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist. Some people say that you're Elijah. Some people say that you're a prophet. And, and Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? I don't really care right now about who they say, who they say I am. I want to know who you say that I am. And Peter, who was always the impetuous one, it's almost like he's the guy in class who always raises his hand first. He was the guy who stepped out of the boat first, right? So, so Simon Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And so this is Jesus' response to him. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So it is God who reveals this to us by his spirit. 
In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. So the way in which we're saved is because of the work of the spirit of God, opening our eyes to the fact that we're sinners separated from God, that we're under the wrath of God and we are in need of the salvation of God that has been given to us in Christ Jesus by way of the cross. So this is a work of the Spirit, not a work of us. That's what Paul was saying in Ephesians 5. It's by grace that we've been saved through faith. It's not anything that we've done. This is a gift that God's given us. There's nothing that we've done so that we can't boast about our own salvation. And Paul writes about this in Ephesians as well, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 18. He says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So the eyes of our hearts are opened and enlightened by the Spirit of God. That's who the Spirit is, and that's what the Spirit does, pointing us to Jesus and how we have a relationship with the Father through Christ. John Piper said this. He said, there is a spiritual seeing through and beyond natural seeing. There's a spiritual hearing through and beyond natural hearing. There's a spiritual discerning through and beyond natural reasoning. And that's from John Piper. So, so all of this comes through the Spirit of God. It's validated by the Word of God. So it comes through the Spirit of God, validated by the Word of God, so that we might believe in the truth of God. So just know that our, our faith in Christ is not without substance because of the incarnation of Jesus, the eyewitness testimony of the apostles and disciples, but even more so the testimony regarding His Son, God's Son, Jesus, by His Spirit, who points us to the Father. And not only does He lead us to salvation as the Spirit draws us, but as we come to faith in Christ, the Spirit of God resides in us, continuing to be the one who leads us into all truth. And so he helps us to see. He opens the eyes of our heart to see the truth. And that's how we're able to discern what is a lie from what is the truth. As we're reading the Word of God, as we're reading God's Word, we're able, we're able to know the truth of who, of who God is. So, so I think it's just I think it's something that's important for us to um, to realize that that we have to make sure we know who He is, um, and as the Spirit uh, shows us specifically through the Word of God. Um, you know, I, I think about how do we how do we not become deceived um, with this, and and I think about there's a lot of people who just don't want to read the Word of God and allow the Spirit of God to speak to them through the Word of God. Or you hear phrases sometimes about, I want to follow the red letter Jesus. Maybe you've heard that in some, in some popular cultural talk and speaking, like they want the red letter Jesus, right? Not, not the God of the Old Testament. They want the God of the New Testament. They want Jesus and what he has to say, the, 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 the Jesus that's nice and kind and loving and merciful and forgiving. And yes, he is all of that, but also there is a God who is a God of wrath, a God of justice, a, a God of discipline, um, a God who holds us accountable, a God. I mean, so we have to understand who God is as a whole. But some would say, you know, I just want to follow the red letter Jesus. But often, not always, but more than more often than not, following the red letter Jesus is, is an attempt to just justify not accepting the whole of God's word and limit Jesus to this culturally acceptable caricature rather than his unchanging character as God the Son. So Jesus is, as John writes in his gospel, right? He, so going back to the gospel that, we, that I mentioned just a few moments ago in chapter 1, uh, Jesus is the Word made flesh, right? The, the the Logos, the Word made flesh, God's Word made flesh. So not just a snippet of God's Word made flesh, but the totality of God's Word made flesh. 
So Jesus is not the embodiment of the teachings that many find pleasing to the palate of their, of their self-centered taste buds, but he's the fullness of the word made flesh. So a person can't understand the fullness of the words of Jesus without knowing and understanding the wholeness of God's word. Yet what's, what's become commonplace, it seems, in, in, in churches and in, in religious speak is, is, is to misrepresent Jesus and his words by cutting and pasting scripture to kind of the storyboard narrative that a person seeks to create, which is not hard or difficult or costly, but it's easy and tolerant and attractive. That's the gospel. That's, that's the word of God they want. But here's what we need to know. Such is the essence of deception that echoes of Eden, right? I mean, think about what, what Satan had said to Eve. Did God actually say? So this is not a new strategy. This is not new at all. So we have to know the word of God, the whole word of God, not just sections of the word of God. Um, if we're going to know the truth that John's speaking about in 1 John, this Jesus, there's substance to our faith. The spirit is the one who's the greater testimony, the greater witness, and how he shows us who the father is. Opening eyes of our heart is often, well, not apart from the word of God we, and the whole word of God, not just a section of the word of God that's taken out of context, right? Because if there's no standard of truth to, to which you can turn to see what God actually has said, you're going to fall into deception, and that's going to lead to destruction. So one thing that, that I, I know for a fact is you can't measure truth with your heart. There has to be a standard, and the standard we've been given is the whole counsel of God's word that is illuminated by the Spirit of God who lives in us as believers. So think about it this way. If you've, if you've ever had a house built, we've had a couple of houses built, and, uh, and if you've ever had a house built, I'm almost certain that you hired a construction crew that used precise measurements when they, when they poured the foundation, when they built the frame, they made cuts on boards and trim, and, and all that goes with building your house correctly, right? There's tape measures. I mean, they've got, they, they, they shoot um, you know, a laser line to make sure things are done straight and, and right and right angles. I mean, they use these precision, these precise instruments and tools. I mean, it would be nightmarish if when you were going to check out your house and, and everything was completed and, and you're about to get handed the keys and your, and your contractor is there and he says, you know, I'm so happy for you guys. I just want you to know that this house that I've built, I've measured all of this with my heart and it felt right. I mean, I, I will tell you very assuredly that if that is the person building your house, you're going to have some major issues. I don't want a contractor that tells me that that he measured it with his heart and that it just felt right. Now, I want it to be precise. And the same thing is true when it comes to the word of God. And what John is saying, I'm sharing these things that you might know, that you abide in Christ, abiding in his word, that you would know the truth. It's not based upon your feelings and what feels right. It's based upon what God's word says is right. And so in this day, in this culture where there's so much false teaching, and some of it is very nuanced, some of it's very subtle because that's how the enemy works, go back again to the Garden of Eden, we have to know and discern what is the truth. And as we walk through this study in 1 John, we're going to begin to see how he begins to disciple and lead the believers to know and give them answers to the questions that they have regarding false teaching, the truth, and if they're truly saved. And I really believe that if you're doubting this book, this letter, and I would encourage you to read it, five chapters, I believe with all my heart it will give you the certainty that you've been longing for and looking for if you stay true to his word. So that's my encouragement to you. I hope that you will uh, uh, join me next time as we look 
at the next section of scriptures in First John chapter 1 um, as we find out how can we know and be certain of the truth of who God is, discerning false teaching from what's true, and be able to walk in truth and walk in love. So important for us as believers in Christ. I hope you have a great rest of the day, and I look forward to you joining me on the next episode of Crossroads and Culture. Thank you.